0: Hello and welcome to the Social Protection Podcast. I'm your host, Jo Sharp. In this episode, we're talking about how social protection is being called to act on climate change. 2022 has been a year of record-breaking heatwaves, wildfires, droughts and floods. As these shocks become more frequent and more severe, are our social protection systems prepared to meet rising demand? We'll also look at the ways social protection programs can be leveraged to help mitigate the impacts of climate change, for example, to support environmental restoration and nature-based solutions. And we'll explore the critical role of social protection schemes to support the major societal changes required to transition to post-carbon economies. In this episode, I'm speaking with Bessie Masusa. Chief Economist in the Department of Economic Planning and Development in Malawi, to talk about how Malawi is making its social protection schemes more adaptive and climate sensitive, and Cecilia Costella, an independent consultant and senior advisor with the Red Cross Climate Centre. Welcome Bessie and Cecilia. Thank you. Thank you. Cecilia, let me start with you. Social protection systems and programs are designed to protect vulnerable people to help them manage risks and mitigate shocks. How is climate change transforming those risks to people, families and communities?
1: I think to understand how climate change is transforming risks for people, it's good to think about those risks as a combination of factors. So on one side, we have the hazards, such as sea level rise, desertification, more intense storms. On the other, we have the ways in which people are exposed to those hazards, say, because we live near a coast or in an area that's becoming drier. And more importantly, perhaps, is vulnerability, the um, ability of people to cope with the potential impacts of those hazards. So, for instance, having the money or the physical ability to move when a storm hits or having the knowledge or the money to apply, improve agricultural methods in dry areas, right? So... When we look at the hazards, we do see a worrying picture in terms of climate change driving significant changes to those hazards in at least three ways. As we all know, climate change is increasing the intensity and the frequency of extreme events, storms, droughts, heatwaves, right? Just in the last year, cyclones in Southern Africa, heatwaves in India, Pakistan, drought and extreme heat in Europe, all of them attributed to climate change these events are creating significant socioeconomic impacts and among those of course they increase poverty and food insecurity in the short term and also in the long term they might lead to an erosion in living standards to increase vulnerability and to just erode people's resilience but they're not the only hazards that climate change is increasing we also see an increase on what's known as a slow onset events in the ipcc language And these are events that are gradual, that are slowly changing the climate system and the environment. And they could make some livelihoods unviable, like agricultural-based livelihoods or forest-based or fisheries-based livelihoods. And they might even lead to people being displaced. So all of them also increase vulnerability, increase inequality, poverty, the type of impacts that social protection is concerned with. The last way in which climate change is driving risks is by... The very responses that we need to take because climate change is happening. So, for instance, climate change mitigation measures as, such as the transformation of industries, the closure of some industries will lead to impacts on people like losing jobs, price increases. One of the most important things to keep in mind, especially for social protection practitioners, is how much these this changes impact us, how much they impact people around the world depends to a large extent on how exposed and vulnerable those people are, right? So we know that poverty, inequality, social exclusion are some of the most important sources of vulnerability. So reducing vulnerability is key to reducing the risk and the impacts.
0: Bessie, coming to you, how are you seeing the emerging effects of climate change in Malawi and how are they
2: affecting people and the economy there? In the past 10 years, we've been hit by El Nino, Okay, in 2015, 2016, we saw all all those floods and even uh, last year in 2021, we had the tropical storm Anna and Gombe hitting us. In 2019, 2020, we had cyclone Idai. All those things has hit Malawi so badly that it has affected the livelihoods because we are talking about the livestock being lost crops being lost, and also the the stresses in terms of health, all those things have hit Malawi very hard. So as you are aware, uh, Malawi is in uh, part of the Southern Africa. So um, mostly 80% of the population, they depend on rain-fed agriculture as a source of livelihood. Uh, They also depend on forest-based natural resources as a source of income. So all these things are being affected by the change in climate. So um, these bare lands, which we are creating due to deforestation, soil losses, uh, loss of groundwater, they affect the livelihoods of most Malawians, which we depend on. To remedy this, we just have to do something in terms of changing the changing climate so that we will build resilience of our households in Malawi. 80% of them whom they live in the rural areas.
0: Thank you. And we'll come back to some of the measures that Malawi is taking to do that. Cecilia, let's talk first about the impacts of changes in the climate system, which you described earlier, those more extreme events, as well as gradual changes to the environment. And you've described how they can increase poverty and vulnerability. What is the role of a social protection program, therefore, or social protection programs in responding to these expanded and changing risks. I
1: just wanted to to add that there was an attribution study for one of the storms that Bessie was talking about, the the tropical cyclone ANA, and the increased rainfall associated with the cyclone was attributed to climate change. But, of course, the impacts of it are also caused by the high vulnerability of the context, both in Malawi but also in other countries in the region like Madagascar and, and Mozambique. I think the role of social protection is very important here because as I was saying before, there is not much we can do at the moment to change the hazards from intensifying in the short and medium term. So one thing we can do in the coming years is to reduce people's vulnerability to these impacts. And this is where social protection has an important role to play because social protection in theory is a tool for reducing underlying vulnerability of people. So for instance, there are studies that show that the Zambia Child Grant Program has helped mitigate the impacts of weather extremes on poor households just by providing regular cash transfers over a long period of time, even without a specific climate objectives. So there is a role for social protection to reduce overall vulnerability to both shocks and gradual changes to lives and livelihoods just by reducing poverty and inequality and improving, you know, basic human development outcomes. There is, of course, a role of social protection as a large-scale shock response mechanism, and this is something that we talk about sometimes a lot more. Of course, we've seen examples of social protection responses to large shocks, like the responses to the COVID-19 pandemic, but there are also many examples of social protection programs being used as a response to climate-related shocks from the Philippines, where the 4P cash transfer program is regularly used as a mechanism to respond to large and small shocks. The Kenya uh, Hunger Safety Net program, which has a built-in contingency protocol to act quickly in the face of uh, increasing drought conditions. And more recently, we have seen the Benassir Income Support Program in Pakistan supporting people right after the floods that happened in August, which uh, were made a lot more likely because of climate change. I think there is a third way in which social protection has a role in managing these impacts by building more resilient livelihoods and less risky environments. So economic inclusion programs helps people manage shocks, but also diversify their livelihoods away from climate-sensitive sources of livelihoods like agriculture. And approaches like public works programs or conditional transfers can help restore environments, reduce risk. We have lots of evidence from programs in Ethiopia, in South Africa, in India, where they have helped improve nature based outcomes. Essentially, they have helped improve land and water availability for agriculture or forestation. They have reduced the risk of drought. So, all of these functions of social protection contribute in some way to what is known as climate change adaptation, right? At the moment, though, most of these programs are not focusing on climate change per se, and this could be hindering their ability to properly contribute to climate change adaptation.
0: Bessie, Malawi is working towards shock-sensitive social protection system, I think is the term used, that can support people through lean seasons between harvests as well as respond to sudden onset shocks that we've been talking about. How do you see these programs helping people to withstand the impacts of climate change?
2: Yeah, sure. Yeah. So the launch part of the social protection program in Malawi is the social cash transfer program. So it's covering all the 28 districts and 10% of the population of the country. So these uh, beneficiaries, when they are enrolled in the program, they are there for four years before we recertify them again. So what happens is because we have noticed that the transfer speech, they are not enough. So during the lean season, what we do is to top up these transfer values so that they meet the lean seasonal needs. And then because we know that if it's a shock, it doesn't affect only the social cash transfer beneficiaries. Because then if it's a shock, like a flood, like a a, a drought, it has hit more people. So we add more people. And then when the lean season goes, we contract back and then we wait for another season. So... In Malawi, we already know between November, December, January, February, March, it's a rain season. That is predictable. So because we already anticipate right at the moment, we are also investing more on the anticipatory work. In terms of the drought, like last year, what we did was to build in a scalable mechanism under the social cash transfer program. So we piloted it in three districts using some triggers, so we had two two types of triggers, the onset and the rate triggers. So this year we are able to pay the beneficiaries in those three districts using those trigger mechanism. But because we already know that the shocks are anticipated, every year in year out, we have around one point two million food insecure households. So what we are doing in terms of the cash transfer beneficiaries, we already have an inbuilt cash plus interventions delivering to these households because we want to build resilient livelihoods within those households. So we give them the financial inclusion, financial literacy trainings, business management, and then we give them seed money so that they can start these small businesses because we already know that they will be affected. Like so many
0: countries, Malawi provided emergency cash transfers as part of its response to COVID. Are there lessons from that experience that you can apply as you're looking to build more shock responsive or adaptive social protection systems?
2: Yes. So um, the COVID 19 cash transfer was implemented in the four cities Blanta, Zomba, Lilongwe, and Mzuzu. But the normal social protection program doesn't cover those cities, it's only in the rural areas. So when COVID came, Uh, we didn't have data. We didn't have the list of the households. So we had to do a rapid data collection. So what we wanted was only to target those informal sector. But to target those informal sector workers, it was really a challenge because we didn't have data. So moving forward, I think what we want to do is to strengthen the the UBR and make it up to date so that it's more relevant uh, to target when a shock comes because our colleagues in humanitarian, they didn't need up to date data, real time data, not four year data. And again, due to widespread poverty, targeting was really a challenge. If you go down into the communities, everybody says I'm poor and to explain and people to understand why the, the other household has been chosen while them have been left out, it's also a challenge. So what we want to do now is now to combine targeting methods. We want to to use the poverty targeting using the proxy means testing, what we we usually do, and then also have another layer of targeting. So whether it's community-based, so that the communities can now verify if that person has really been affected or is really poor, and also using maybe a categorical targeting. If you are old, you are old. Nobody can dispute that. If you have some disability, you have it. So that's what we want to do.
1: Bessie, that is quite interesting, these challenges that you've had with the targeting, because poverty targeting might work in some context, but we don't really know how well it works in a context of increasing climate-related risk. And I think Malawi is a good example of how this might not work, because essentially you have a context of high vulnerability where lots of people are poor, but they also have other dimensions of vulnerability. As you were saying, There, you know, some people are old, some people are young, some people are, have a disability. So I think it's an interesting reflection to try and understand what works and what doesn't work in terms of poverty targeting or different types of targeting in a context of increased climate risk.
0: Cecilia also mentioned the role of public works programs. And Bessie, Malawi's public works program is an example of one of these that's trying to help communities address environmental degradation as a way to increase resilience and mitigate the impacts of climate change. Can you tell us a little bit about that program and what makes it climate sensitive?
2: So public works program in Malawi, in the past, we are only looking at the social protection part of it like giving consumption support for their everyday basic needs. But moving on, we have adopted a catchment management approach because we've realized that this is the source of livelihoods to these households. They have to maintain these resources so that they can continue living. So what we are doing now is to employ certain measures for restoring the, the environment We are looking at regeneration of the forest, uh, afforestation interventions, soil erosion, uh, uh, gallery reclamation. But at the same time, they can get the transfers after they have worked to restore the environment. As I said, 80% of Marawians depend on these natural resources. In terms of energy and in terms of even livelihoods. So we have to maintain this source of uh, livelihoods. So the catchment management approach if you are maintaining the forest, now we'll have water tables high, and then people will not walk long distances to fetch water. they also have the firewood. they also have the forest-based products for their livelihoods. So um, people are given that sort of work. They work for 12 days a month. That's paid work. And then they work five days a month as community contribution. Because whatever they are doing is for their own benefits. So that's what we are doing. You know, there have been critiques of
0: public works programs in in lots of places that, you know, if you're choosing the wrong kind of infrastructure to work on, that it can actually have negative environmental impacts. So you've got to really choose what what those works are quite carefully. Is that something that Malawi has been able to reflect on or is, is that something that you've thought about in your work?
2: Yes, so the process of identifying those activities starts from sensitization of the communities, and then they do a village action plan themselves. We, for the district councils just support them in terms of now writing those village action plans. So under the district council, even at the local level, we have the natural resources task force committee. We call them village natural resources committee. And then at the district level, we also have the district natural resources committee. And from the central, we have this central ministry, uh, minister of natural resources and the environmental, whatever, whatever. So what we do is when they are doing the village action plans, we have somebody from the minister of natural resources going down to the district. To complement or supplement whatever the district environment officer is doing, and then we go down to the natural resources committee at the community level. But we have all the necessary uh, capacities so that we can come up with these sub projects in terms of restoring the environment.
0: So, Cecilia, we've talked about the changing climate and how that's going to impact people and create new risks, but as you also We're explaining if the world is going to successfully reduce greenhouse gas emissions, there will be these major structural changes, things like changes to food and fuel and transport prices, changes to industries, employment, livelihoods, and all of those sorts of things. What could be the role of social protection in either enabling those shifts or, on the other hand, compensating for their negative effects?
1: Yeah, that's a very interesting issue. In a way, some of the measures that we put in place to reduce carbon emissions, to transition to more sustainable sources of energy are actually affecting people's jobs and and livelihoods. So this is new. It's a new risk, but in a way, the function of social protection and the role of social protection is not new at all. It's something that social protection has done in the past. So if we look at some of the potential impacts of these measures. For instance, policies such as closing coal-based industries or eliminating harmful practices like forest logging. These closures will lead to employment losses for many people, and then this will require tailor-made unemployment or early retirement schemes, right? There will be new jobs that will be created in new industries, but they will require different skills. So there is a need to put in place active labor market schemes that promote those new skills and help people transition to new jobs. So... There is a clear role for social insurance, for labour market instruments here. And if we reflect on the history of social protection, at least in most high-income countries, we see that this type of policy, social protection policies, have supported many transitions in the past, such as the Industrial Revolution, the post-war transition. So it makes sense that social protection is called to act in the case of the climate transition. We see already some examples, for instance, in, in Poland, the government has decided to close some coal mines to meet their emissions targets, and at the same time, it's setting aside financial support for workers who will become unemployed, as well as for reskilling those workers so that they can find new jobs. The thing to keep in mind is that many of the contexts in which this will be necessary middle-income countries, social insurance and labour market programmes are not as developed, so, there is a gap between the potential role of social protection here and the need to build those systems for, for social protection to play that role. A larger aspect of the transition is around fossil fuel subsidies, carbon taxes, and other fiscal reforms that need to be put in place. For instance, when subsidies are removed, they tend to hurt the poor more, especially through the impacts on food, fuel, transport prices, as you were saying. But if we want to protect those people and at the same time, we incentivize the use of different sources of energy, then it makes more sense to provide targeted benefits to those that are affected by the removal of the subsidies rather than blanket subsidies. And again, social protection has had a role in the past in subsidy reform. Of course, there are many examples from fossil fuel subsidy removal in Latin America. And even though these were not done with the explicit purpose of addressing emissions and reducing climate change, these are examples that we can learn from.
0: Bessie, a really critical part of the discussion around climate transition is, of course, the fact that lower income countries that have historically contributed the least to climate change are now bearing as much, if not more, of the brunt of its effects. What are your expectations for high income countries when it comes to financing climate change adaptation and mitigation in a country like Malawi?
2: So our expectation is that uh, those rich nations who have contributed more to the climate change so should continue funding the poor nations, but also they should honor their pledges because it's one thing to pledge, but one thing to fund. They, they are two different things. So they should pledge, but they should honor their pledges. But for for us as the beneficiary countries, we should use the resources wisely, use them as intended so that we all go towards the common goal of reducing the climate change in the, in the world.
0: Cecilia, climate change is perhaps the defining issue of our age and as you've outlined, there's a lot that social protection could be called to do. Are we, you know, governments, the international community, the social protection sector, Are we giving enough attention to the demands a changing climate will place on social protection systems or perhaps the scope of social protection to be part of the solution, as you've also described today?
1: The short answer, at least from my perspective, is not yet. We have been talking about climate risk in one way or another in the social protection sector for some time, but perhaps not in a sufficiently strategic way. One of the things I'm concerned about is that we're not yet mentioning the implications of climate change for increasing needs and hence for social protection demand. And I think part of the issue could be that we tend to assume that climate change is a problem that will happen in the future, that there is time to avoid all of its terrible impacts if we agree on ambitious emission reduction plans, right? But the reality is that we live today in a world that is 1.2 degrees warmer we already live in a world that is significantly different than anything we have known before. And we're seeing this all around us, record droughts and heat extremes in Europe this summer, half of Pakistan's submerging water in August. The list just goes on and on. Even more concerning is that we are still on course for at least two to three degrees of warming. And this is terrible news. At these levels of warming, which are likely... We will see terrible impacts on poverty, health, food security, displacement, living conditions in general. And we will see a lot more shocks and disasters to a point where actually focusing exclusively on how to better respond to shocks and disasters might be a bit futile because even with the most cost efficient systems, unendingly responding to shocks and disasters is not really efficient. So, again, we need to think how we reduce people's vulnerability so that we can be more prepared to deal with the changes that climate change will bring about. And we also need to think how we help people adapt to transition to this new world. On the other sector side, on the climate sector, on you know, when we think about ministers of finance, I think also the answer is that social protection has not yet been seen as, a, as an important tool to address the impacts of climate change. When we look at the climate adaptation measures that have been put in place so far, we see that they're not sufficient, that they're small, that they're not strategic enough. So we need to make the case that social protection offers a large-scale tool, a nationally-owned tool to reduce poverty and vulnerability, and that this is crucial to managing climate change, right? Just to end on a positive note, I I do get a sense that this is changing, that the issue of climate change is gaining momentum in the social protection sector. We're seeing several initiatives starting to take shape by international actors, by think tanks, researchers, and in fact, I hear you know social protection officials uh, now going as part of delegations to COP in the coming week, and I think this is a testament to you know that momentum growing and to that attention growing. Just as my final question to both of you, what
0: would your message be for leaders at COP about what we need to do to tackle climate change and, I guess, the role of social protection and how it should be considered as part of this transition?
1: So I think without losing sight of the key goal of reducing emissions and stopping climate change and climate breakdown, I think it's also time We accept and we confront the reality that at least for the foreseeable future, we are going to live in a very different world where risks are increased and where we will see a lot of human suffering and increased need because of this risk. And to me, the key message is that adaptation to climate change is not an activity, it's not a project, it's not a sector, it's something that we all must do in all sectors, in all industries, at all levels. And we need to think about how the systems that we already have, like our social protection systems that are nationally owned, that are large scale in many cases, can be adapted It can be transformed to support people in need, in poverty, in deprivation, in this context of increased climate risk. At the same time, of course, we need to use all the tools that we have to enable the shift, that can help us stop or minimize climate breakdown. But what I would say is that social protection can only play this role if coverage is adequate, if national social protection systems are strong, well-funded, if they're inclusive, if they're resilient. In context of high vulnerability, like the context of Malawi, what Bessie was describing, it's evident that unless we focus on building strong systems that can address chronic poverty, that can address chronic vulnerability, it will be very difficult to adapt and to manage the impact of climate change.
2: Yeah, so climate change is here. There's nothing we can do at the moment. We just have to adapt. But what we really need to do is the government, donors, civil society, and all stakeholders to come together, hold hands so that we build a robust system which can respond to the shocks. This build the resilience of the households as I said, continue the pledges, but honouring them is also another good thing to do, but also let's use the resources wisely. Thank you. Thank you both Bessie
0: Mususa and Cecilia Costella for taking the time to talk us through this really critical issue on the Social Protection Podcast today. Thank you. Thank you very much. Before we go, we like to end each episode with some quick wins. We ask a guest to bring in some recommendations for research, news or events that have sparked their interest and that we think you should know more about. Today, we have Felicity O'Brien, an Assistant Director in the Social Protection Team at Australia's Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade. Welcome, Felicity.
3: Hi, Drew. It's good to see you. Thanks for having
0: me. So, Felicity, as we release this episode, it's the end of November, and we're midway through the 16 days of activism against gender-based violence. Your first pick looks at how social protection can address gender-based violence. Tell us about it.
3: Okay. So, um, yes, we um recently put together a webinar on sp.org called Harnessing Social Protection to Address Violence Against Women and Girls. We did that in partnership with UN Women and the Australian National Research Organization on Women's Safety, or ANRUs. So the case studies we looked at and the analysis was sort of showing that cash-based transfers can reduce overall household and individual financial stress. And we know that financial stress is one of the big drivers of violence. I think an important point that was discussed was that, and that we hope to cover in more detail in a longer webinar and podcast series in 2023 is how social protection can play a role in providing vital and timely support to survivors of violence to meet their immediate needs to um, escape violent households.
0: Thanks, Felicity. And we're working on that podcast series. So, everybody, listen out for that one. Your next pick broadens out this perspective to look at the way social protection programs can be safer for people with diverse gender identities as well
3: and better meet their needs. Yeah, this paper came out last year and it's one of the few reports that we're aware of that looks at social protection for people of diverse sexual orientation and gender identity and expression and sexual characteristics, or um, the acronym we use is SOGESC. So the report's called We Don't Do A Lot For Them Specifically improving diverse SOGIESC inclusion in cash transfer and social protection programs during the COVID-19 crisis and beyond. So we um, engaged Edge Effect and Emily Dwyer from Edge Effect to undertake this analysis for us. And we also did a webinar, which is up on the socialprotection.org website. And I think what really kind of stood out for me with this analysis is the extent of the violence and exclusion not only social protection but also humanitarian assistance programs and even essential health and education services um, that people with diverse SOGIESC experience in each of the country that was part of the case study was pretty dire. I think another really important issue that this report raised was around identification, particularly for trans persons. And um, for example, the individual level data collection issues and security data for these communities is quite important when we're thinking about social protection for um, some people in some contexts. And being their true selves can really outweigh the benefits of actually receiving social protection support.
0: Yeah, it's a really good point and a really interesting report. One of the small things that really struck me in this paper is the point it makes about the household as a unit for social assistance payments, which is pretty standard in a lot of programs. But of course, people of diverse sexual orientations and genders may be excluded from their households or or create sort of chosen family household structures. It's really important and interesting, again, to think about how to reach vulnerable people outside that kind of traditional unit for social assistance.
3: So my next pick relates um to the main topic of the episode today, and it's a preprint copy of a paper asking: Can social protection tackle risks emerging from climate change and how? And it has a framework and a critical um, review. So this paper was released in late September, so it's very fresh off the press, and it highlights the important linkages to be built between climate actors and social protection folks in this kind of new world that we're living in and address the new and emerging risks that are arising from climate change and climate impacts.
0: Yes, and Cecilia Costella, who we heard from in the first interview in this episode, is one of the lead authors of this paper, so that's definitely worth a look. And finally, another new one, SocialProtection.org has just published a paper reflecting on itself and its work called The Role of SocialProtection.org in Fostering Knowledge, Exchange and Capacity Building. We had author and SocialProtection.org coordinator Mariana Balboni on the show the other month, actually, and she was talking about this research and some of its findings. But you picked this as well. What, what did you like about this paper?
3: Oh, yeah, Joe, I picked this one mainly because DFAT has been a long-time supporter of the SocialProtection.org platform. And um, it was just great personally for me to flick through and see the breadth of wonderful events and publications that have been shared, particularly over the last two years. I think it's actually one of my most visited websites. (laughs) This paper demonstrates the global reach of the sp.org platform and the many really important conversations through both your podcast and the webinar series that have been featured. The report also reinforces why sp.org is such a vital resource for the global social protection community. It fills the information gaps and creates a common space where information and knowledge can be shared. And I don't know of any other sector that can come together on an equivalent platform.
0: Thanks, Felicity. We all really appreciate that. And we think socialprotection.org, all of its channels, but of course, actually all of its members and hopefully our audience are really special too. Thanks, Felicity, for joining us on the Social Protection Podcast today. Thanks for having me, Jo. And thank you for joining me for the Social Protection Podcast. We are a production of socialprotection.org from the International Policy Centre for Inclusive Growth. Follow us on Twitter at SP underscore Gateway and find us on Facebook, YouTube and LinkedIn. Subscribe to this podcast via your favourite podcast provider and leave a review. Back next month. See you then.